Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, I'm Steph. And I'm Simon. And this is The Food Fight, a frank discussion of food culture featuring Australia's top chefs, producers and experts. We'll chat about real issues and go places others won't. This podcast travels throughout the country and we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather and speak. And we pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. This week we have a special episode for you. It's NAIDOC week and we'll be chatting about Aboriginal cultural fishing on the New South Wales South Coast. This episode will be in two parts. First, we'll chat with Wally Stewart, a Wolbunja man from Naruma who is one of the leaders of the New South Wales Aboriginal Fishing Rights Group who are fighting for cultural fishing rights and for an Indigenous voice in fisheries and marine management on the New South Wales South Coast. And in the second part of the episode, we'll speak with Andrew Nye. Andrew is a fifth-generation Wolbunja commercial cultural fisherman from Mogo. And Andrew and some of his family are licensed to fish commercially on the New South Wales South Coast using traditional techniques such as rowboats and handmade nets. We'll hear both their stories and some of the challenges they face in asserting their native title and cultural fishing rights on the far south coast of New South Wales. We hope you enjoy this special episode. Let's begin in Naruma on Ewan Country, overlooking the Wagonga Inlet, speaking with Wally Stewart. All right, we're here in Naruma on the New South Wales south coast with Wally Stewart. Wally, thanks so much for joining me, mate. To get started, we're in an absolutely beautiful place looking over the Wagonga Inlet right now. And you just told me there used to be a cannery right in front of us. Do you want to just tell us a bit about, first tell us a bit about yourself and um, your people and, and where you're from? Uh, well, my name's Wally Stewart. I'm born and bred in Naruma. I'm a Wellbunja man from the South Coast, part of the Yuan Nation. I'm a, an applicant for the South Coast Native Title Claim. And I'm also a representative for the New South Wales Aboriginal Fishing Rights Group, which we, um, which is a group that lobby for people's Aboriginal fishing rights that's been taken away from us over the years. Mm. So that's what we're here to talk about today. And I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to get to, but I think to set the scene, it's important to talk about how important fishing is to the UN people. So, do you want to tell us a bit about? how fishing was a part of your life when you were growing up around here and how important it is to your community here? Well, it wasn't only important to my life, it was important to all young people on the south coast. I think about 85 to 90% of our food you know, came from the estuaries and, and, and the ocean. young people have, are known to have that you know, real close ties to the, to the ocean and we relied on them resources all our life and we, we still do. It was a healthy lifestyle and, and then um, my father was a fisherman and my father and mother moved to Naruma in 1958 and bought a house in Naruma and um, he was a fisherman as well. When he moved to Naruma, bought the house in 1958, the white community came around with the petitions to try to move us out because Aboriginal people weren't actually allowed to live in the town. My mum and dad were pretty strong people in them days and they met the people at the door with their petition and showed them that, you know, their deeds and titles and said, mate, this is our place and we're not moving. So it sort of paved the way for Aboriginal people to actually live in the town. But my father was a fisherman and then he, so we set up a shop beside the house and, and then he fished all along the coast here, all, all the local lakes and stuff. And um, that's how he kept us fed. We had I was the youngest out of 10 kids, so he, he, he fed a lot of us and, and he fed a lot of the other Aboriginal communities as well and taught a lot of other people in communities how to fish and hang nets and was something that he passed on to us that I used to come home from school and he'd be sitting out the backyard and he'd be hanging nets and then I'd try to sneak out the back door to go and play with my mates and he would say, come here you, and, <laughs> and then I'd be standing on the other side and he'd be showing me how to hang a net and I hated it because I wanted to go and play with my mates but at the end of the day it's something that you once you learn you never forget and mm. I was able to you know, keep this because it's a dying practice and, and I was able to pass it on and teach a men's group in Wollaga, Wollaga Lake men's group to 
um, hanging that and a few of the boys up at Benji and programs grown. But, yeah, so yeah. so hanging nets, you mean building building the nets or weaving yeah, the yeah. nets? Yeah, yeah, so it's a gill net. Aboriginal people have been using nets, you know, down here for thousands of years and, and there's even stories when um, Captain Cook came here, they seen us using our nets and took it back to England and that's how the seine net actually come about. The seine nets are the ones that our um, brothers and cousins use, the Nye brothers, and they still fish with it today. The only thing that's changed over 100 years is they use four drives. It's one of the still mm. one of the most fishing-friendly practices left in the world. It's mm. because um, they can target their species and they get little bycatch and, and they shoot these nets across sand so it doesn't do any damage to the to the reefs or anything like that because mm. it's on sand and they still row their boats and then the only thing that's changed over 100 years is they use four drives and yep. you know, not drag it over the beach or horse and carts. Yeah, and so what around here? Your father, as a as a fisherman around here, what sort of species, you know, were were sort of targeted, and and what are, what yeah. are some of the seafoods that you sort of grew, grew up on around this area? Oh, we grew up with you know all the all the seafoods around here. So yeah. our house is in McDonald Road, so we were just around the corner from um you know the boat shed, and you know we just grew up every day. And as a, and my father was a fisherman, so he targeted all the species as well as lobsters and abalone and oysters, and we were pretty privileged to what we grew up with we didn't have much but we always had plenty of seafood yeah so we worked all the lakes and then he'd you know do the seasons when they come around then he he'd he'd also chase some seagar fish and stuff like that and then he taught us where to get lobsters and and you know and then as we were kids growing up no one knew what abalone basically was so we was always walking around the rocks picking up a bag of um, abalone for a feed and and bartering and stuff yeah it was basically everything that's in in our in our country we actually lived off even in in Wagonga here there's middens all around the place and, mm. you know, and Aboriginal sites where um, people lived before us. But as, like I said, as the fishing industry grew, it um, sort of took it away from us and, and it done a lot of damage to our mm. people because of the change of the diet and stuff because mm. they weren't able to access it. We'll get we'll get to that in in a moment. Yeah. You're one of many. You can you can tell me tell me how many, but one of many native title claimants here on the uh, far south coast native title claim. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the claim and about the process of registering it. Yeah, so um, just to register the claim, you've got to gather a, a whole heap of evidence and, and um, make sure that the right people are in that area and, and there's some connection there. So that's that's a process in itself. That could take four or five years of gathering all that evidence and all the genealogies of all the Aboriginal people in, within our boundary of our claim and and checking the um, historical evidence as well as our own people's evidence. So we had an authorisation meeting in um, 2016, so you could imagine the work that had to lead up to that. And then um, we had about six or 700 Aboriginal people come to the authorisation meeting to, to authorise the claim to be um, registered. And then, then it goes for another process to the um, Native Title Tribunal, and then they assess the evidence and to see if the evidence is strong enough, and the evidence is strong enough, and then so she was registered in... In 2018, we became um, the South Coast Native Title Claim. Mm. Yeah, and so now the process is now is that we um gathering our evidence, and that's a, a long process as well. But the claim goes from South of Sydney all the way down. It should go all the way down past Victoria, but because of boundaries and politics, went right down to the um, Victorian border. Yeah, it could have went in further. It goes up to the mountain range, which is the Butterwong, and three nautical miles out to sea. So it covers up basically the whole coastline down the south coast. Mm. Tell me a bit about when finally, after all that work, the claim was registered. What was the feeling like? Like how did it feel for yourself and for the community? It was, it was overwhelming because we've been having a battle down here, you know, with fisheries. You know, for the last forty years, they've been, they've really done a lot of damage to our communities along the along the coast. Probably in the last ten years, we've had over six hundred engagements with Aboriginal people just down here on the south coast. Fisheries, them engagements are from just um, warnings, fines, and then prosecutions where they got warrants and, and um, bonds and even right down to sending people to jail. Mm. And um, we've never ever seen that as um, as a crime. We've already seen our fishing practice as part of our culture. We've been mm. doing it forever. Every, all the pre- practice that we do is, you know, we've been taught. I, yeah. I still go to places down here where my father showed me where lobster nests are and, you know, I'm 61 now and, you know, I can still go back there and get some lobsters out of them places. And so that's something that we've passed on. And then because of the impact of colonisation and setting up Aboriginal reserves, like Wallaga Lake was the first Aboriginal reserve, you know, in Australia because we are the first contact of Captain Cook. So we felt the impact first and then um, Aboriginal reserves were set up and there was policies called segregation and assimilation. And I've heard of Aboriginal people on the mission and then we'll 
you know, denied our language and our food and were given rations, bully beef and sugar and flour and tobacco. But um, our people still um, was able to fish and they had a, they were given a boat and net at Wallaga and so that actually subsidised their rations and were able to compromise that healthy lifestyle. Take us back to you've been fishing and gathering and stuff around here your whole life. Tell me a bit about how you would fish to feed the community and then when things began to change and when prosecutions began and when yeah. Aboriginal people around here started being targets of, of, yeah. of fisheries and prosecution. Well, it was um, like as a kid, we grew up here on the, you know, on the coast and my father was a fisherman, but we spent a lot of time out on the, on the ocean and camping and family gatherings and stuff like that. Mystery Bay is, you know, a really special place. Abalone was like, for our mob down here, was like bread and butter. We ate it every day and it was easy to get because um, we could walk around on the low tide. We didn't even have to dive for it. And it wasn't until the abalone industry actually came along in the late 70s, early 80s and then... All of a sudden, you know, we're still going out diving and, you know, for lobsters and abalone and fishing and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, this abalone industry came along and then started prosecuting us. And so, you know, well, you know, we weren't even given the opportunity to be part of it. They just came along and took it away. So is it the beginning? So in terms of abalone, as soon as yeah. the as soon as the commercial abalone industry started to really take off, yeah, was, was when they started limiting limiting the sort of the cultural take or your well, ability they, to they, take. Well, um, we didn't even know what was going on. You know, like this fishing industry started. We're talking about in before Aboriginal people had rights. You know, we never became citizens till 1967. Mm. This fishing industry was set up in in the 30s. And that's and that's one of the that, that's sort of one of the reasons as to why. There was absolutely no involvement of Aboriginal exactly people in right. the industry, and there still isn't today. We used to eat them in the early days, and people didn't even know what they were. Mm. But then, you know, when this abalone industry came along, then I think you know it's pretty it's pretty common that DPI Fisheries Government seen it as um oh shit money making you know venture and you know and then they got the market and started exporting them overseas and. You know, so they protected that industry, and then when they started protecting that industry, they started policing our guys that were have been doing this all their life, and so we were made out to be, you know, criminals and organised crime and black mafia, you name it. But um, our guys just seen it as, you know, cultural practice. We bartered and traded with it as well, so we were being criminalised basically when the abalone industry came along, mm. and then they and it's still today where they, you know, they protect that industry because they pay a lot of money for them shares. Mm. You know, and so. Tell us about beginning in the 90s and, and through till today is when you've seen a really large increase in the amount of prosecutions and the way that Aboriginal people are targeted taking abalone. And we'll sort of focus on abalone at the moment because that's where a lot of the prosecutions and things have been around. Yeah, that's right. Some of our guys got their first criminal records from fishing. Right. And so tell us about how, I mean, firstly, let's talk about the health, the health issue and yeah. how these prosecutions impact on the health of well, the Aboriginal yeah. community. Yeah, well, when they started prosecuting our people, coming down on us and saying that, you know, these resources are theirs and we had no right to take them. And we'd done a case study in, in, um, in 2016 and, and we highlighted the damage that this government, or every time they put a regulation on us, the damage that it done to our community. So we were looking at a change of diet. So that created heart disease, diabetes. And then because of the, they were too scared to go out and fish anymore because every time they turned up, um, you know, fisheries and the police were there trying to lock them up. So there was that mental health issues and loss of culture because they were too scared to take their kids out to fish and teach them. Then they were sent to jail and then they were coming out with mental health issues and their families were breaking down. And so all these issues were highlighted in the case study that we'd done. And it nearly severed two generations of, of culture fishing. And it was all because of they just wanted to protect this one industry. Mm. And no one, no one even knew what it was, you know, 30 years before that. Yeah. And that was, you know. Tell us about how the work that you do with the New South Wales Aboriginal Fishing Rights Group works to now, in, in conjunction with the native title claim, to change this practice and these prosecutions and some of the some of the cases that are a part of that. Yeah, so the New South Wales Fishing Rights Group is made up of a whole heap of concerned Aboriginal people. We've just had enough of what's been happening down here and the way um, you know fisheries have destroyed our um, way of life and we've been doing this for thousands of years and all of a sudden they come along and say they own these resources and throwing our people in jail, really destroying our way of life. And so the Fishing Rights Group got together and said, no, we've had enough. And we all went up and done a protest at, at Browley in, in, I think it was 2015. We didn't realise how many people were, you know, were impacted by it and we had 180 people turn up, you know, and then they came in telling their stories and 
there was no good stories, you know, amongst them all. Everyone had been prosecuted and, you know, their families were starving, something that they were taught, you know, and handed down to how to feed their families. A lot of them down on the, you know, people on the south coast live below the poverty line. There's no work down here, but they know how to fish and know how to feed their families and that creates that healthy lifestyle. So the fishing rights group got together and then, um, you know, the Native Title Act came along in 92 and then the Fisheries Management Act had to be amended in 93 to accommodate that. So there's a section in the New South Wales Fisheries Management Act called Section 211 of the Native Title Act, which exempts us from the Fisheries and the Marine Park Management Act for culture fishing. And then because of this abalone industry, they totally ignore it and they still ignore it today. So we've had to challenge them and and um, when they prosecute our people for exceeding their bag limit, which is... You know, their bag limit, not ours, they'd take us to court. So we would, we would challenge them cases and use Section 211 um, as a defence because they choose to ignore that. It's in their Fisheries Management Act, it's in there. So we've had a couple of cases thrown out, probably, you know, four or five or a lot more actually. So we have to gather all of our information to use to um, use that Section 211 as a, as a defence. So we have to go and gather that, you know, that information on that person. We have to gather his genealogy. Um, to say that he's a member of this, you know, South Coast Native Title claim, and you know he's exempted from the Fisheries Management Act, so they would still prosecute us and and take us right to court, and then like a day or two before the court case, they would drop the case. So they were basically wasting taxpayers' money, and they still do it. And why you know, do you think they? Why do you think they do that? Why do you think that if they if they now know that there's a precedent that these cases won't stand up in court, and then they throw it out a couple of days before the trial? Why do you think they go ahead with the, the arrests and the seizures and the prosecution and, and, and that whole part of the process? Pretty obvious. They're there to protect an industry because you know, we, we've had words with them, fisheries, and said, why don't you go and tell these guys that we've got a right under the Act? And then their answer to that, you, you need to go and talk to the Abalone industry every time they ring up and see you blackfellas out there diving, we've got to act on it. You know, and I said, well, why don't you go and tell them that we've got a right? You know, Under Section 211, it's in your fisheries management like for me, that's straight out discrimination. You know, mm. it's, their Fisheries Management Act has been amended with a Commonwealth law that sits over the state, and they choose to ignore it. So, to me, this government is discriminating against our people and protecting this one little you know industry who play, pays a lot of money. And the and the amount of abalone they've taken over the years since that industry set up, like, is unbelievable. And every time our people go out and get a little bag full, or, you know, even a couple of hundred abs, it's nothing compared to what they've taken out of the, out of this water along mm. our coastline. One stage there, they were taking 350 ton a year. Well, between all our mob on the south coast, we'd be lucky to take three or four ton a year. Mm. Yeah, none of our guys dive with um, boats and air compressor and stuff like that. They all just jump off the rocks. They're lucky to dive two metres deep. But they've betrayed us as, um, you know, the black mafia and, you know, when, when they catch our mob exceeding their bag limit, which is two that doesn't feed our, you know, suitable for our mob. And, and it's like we said, we never gave them away. They just came along and took them away. So... This is the beauty about the native title. Now we're gathering our evidence and because it goes three nautical miles out to sea and you and people are really connected to the water, that's what Katunga means, that's what our medical service, Katunga means sea people and that's that's who we are. So the evidence is coming out pretty strong and it's going to show, you know, it's going to basically hopefully set us free and make, you know, make them pay at the end of the day. I'm disappointed that we have to go this far. Mm. You know, they, they think they can just come along and take our resources away and lock our people up and destroy our way of life to protect one little industry, mm. you know, because it's a money-making industry. And then, you know, our people, like I said, never gave them resources up and we're going to fight, we've been fighting back. And that's what the Fish and Rights Group's about, is about protecting our rights, um, keeping our culture alive and, um, you know, stopping our mob from going to jail. What do you say to people and i've heard this and i've i've read this that if indigenous people are allowed to take from anywhere and and there, and there are no restrictions there are no limits and there is no integration of fisheries management commercial fisheries management and indigenous cultural fishing that will end up with a negative for sustainability what do you what do you say to people who sort of put forward that argument and where do you find is there a way to find a middle ground or is there a possibility for a middle ground or does the government have to take some quota away from the commercial sector? Good question. Well, that's one of my arguments is that we've never ever had the opportunity to have a say in management in our own waters and country and we looked after this water a long time 
before they came along here and raped our ocean, basically. And the fellows who are still diving, which is our, a lot of our mob along the coast, that's how they make a living. That's how they feed their families. Everything that they take out of that water goes back to their families and make a living out of it. And they, they're angry. They're pissed off because of the way they've been treated for the last 30 years because of this abalone industry. What we're saying is, you know, look at the damage that this department's done. It's the only department in New South Wales that doesn't employ Aboriginal people. So it's obviously a, a redneck, you know, apartment, and it's been like that forever, and it's because of, you know, it's a money-making industry. Like National Parks is a great example where they employ over, you know, 350 Aboriginal people across the state. They do MOUs, handbacks, co-management, Indigenous land use agreements to look after and work with Aboriginal people to look after country. So... We've been lobbying fisheries to sit down with us and work out a plan and come together and work with us to look after country. We know that the, that the damage is already done here. Now we've got sea urchin barons right along the coast. 50% of our reefs have, gone with, have, have died and taken over by sea urchins. We believe that it's because of overfishing. They can call it um, you know, climate change and global warming, but our mob have seen it and they're identifying it now that places I used to go in the last 10, 15 years are not there no more. It's just covered in sea urchin barrens. So at the end of the day, where we are now is um, we want to build a relationship and um, we want to have a say in management and we want our water fixed up. Mm. And we shouldn't have to pay. They should pay to do that. But we want to work together. And so um, we're in the process of working with our whole community along the coast um, and designing a sea country plan. Mm-hmm. So and that'll highlight not only sustainability and looking after the environment, but also economic development as well for our community as well. Mm-hmm. Now, why should we, we shouldn't have been left out of the equation in the first place. And for the abalone industry, I mean, why do they still want to take, um, you know, 100 tonne a year? You know, they, they know that they're, they're, they've got no future if they keep doing it. Um, why don't they knock them off the air or, or start looking at, you know, some mechanism to start working with us to, I mean, the b- bottom line is it's an old saying down here amongst you and people, if you've got healthy country, you've got healthy people. Well, we haven't got healthy country, haven't got healthy water. Mm. And if, until we fix that problem, we're going to have we're not going to have, have healthy people. Mm. And so with the development of the sea country plan and the work that you're doing with the fishing rights group, has there been any engagement from DPI and fisheries or levels of government at the moment to, to start this conversation and get to a table and yep. begin dis- discussing this? Yep, so we've had a couple of discussions with um, some senior people in DPI. At the end of the day, the simplest way is, is like they know that our evidence is strong for our claim. You know, there's there's lawyers out there that said it's probably one of the strongest sea claims in Australia because of the way you and people are connected to the water. So at the end of the day, we'll get a determination. But the easiest way is they could come to us with an Indigenous land use agreement. And if they come to us with an Indigenous land use agreement, an Ilua, that could highlight all the things that we're talking about. So this sea country plan that we design with our community could be the model for the future of our waters on the south coast. And that's hoping that if we build it properly, that all the stakeholders, because we're not stakeholders, we're traditional owners, mm. all the stakeholders can ha- will work with them to have their input into it as well. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we want to have a say in management and we want to be looking after our country and government needs to pay for all the... You know, like, we've got no mining companies here, but as far as I'm concerned, this government's mining our waters with all the resources they're taking out. Mm. They need to pay for that, that compensation for the last 250 years. Right to the point is that we need to work together to fix up our waters in our country. Well, it's a pretty straightforward thing, but it's also a relative, like a pretty sad thing that you and your your group and your community are so willing to come to the table with government, not even necessarily laying out your own own plan but just just saying let, let's chat about this let's talk about this and let's come to an agreement and 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 move this conversation forward but you've been unsuccessful in doing that so far yeah well um probably in the last six seven years is the first time that fisheries have actually listened to us it's mm. because you know land rights wasn't um one because we sat there and done nothing we had to get out there and protest and make a noise and basically embarrass the government you know to get to where we are today you mm. know goes right back before the referendum and the walk-offs and you know, all the land rights issues. Well, this is just another one, but mm. it shouldn't be happening in this time. We're in 2021, you know, yeah. and, and it's still happening. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't happen to be sitting there and telling them or trying to f- um, make them understand that, look what you're doing, you're destroying our way of life. We're here. You know you took this office. You stuffed it up. Stop pretending all the time. Get your head out of the sand. 
you know, you straight out discrimination with your Commonwealth Act that had to fit into your Fisheries Management Act in 94 and you still choose to ignore it and still teach your fisheries officers to totally ignore it and just police us under their state laws and hope that um, our mob don't understand and or appeal it and then fight us in court because that's what's happening. That's what's happened in the past. You know, you've destroyed, like I said, some of our people have got their first criminal record for fishing. Mm. And and so it's sad that we have to sit here and keep fighting about it. Mm. When In this day and age when they're, they're choosing to pretend that there's, a, there's not a problem going on right now with the sea urchins. Mm. You know, right along our coast. Now, if anybody lives on this coast, you know, we live in the most beautiful country. I'm proud of that. And But you, you look out on the water and it's beautiful. You put your head under the water and all these people who use this water, you put your head under the water and have a look at that ocean. And what happened to all that weed, you know? All that lobster weed where we used to go and, you know, and dive and it was full of groper and fish and lobsters and abalone. It's not there no more. And it's, and it's because of the overfishing. And fisheries just keep on allowing it to protect this abalone industry, but it's enough's enough. Knock them off the air, let them free dive. You know, start taking some quota away from them. Start looking after the country. Teach them about sustainability. This is what's got to happen. We can't keep going on like this. Mm. But at the end of the day, um, we, you know, we're going to get a determination. We're, we're confident. Native titles about descent and connection, right? We showed our genealogy. There's 60 family groups in this, in this claim along the coast. Most were all married into each other and related in some form, but... It's also connection. And them prosecutions or them 600 engagements, we can use that evidence against them because that shows them that we're still connected to our country. So that's what Native Tiles is about. It's about descent, connection. Mm. So, you know, and that's without all the other written anthropologist reports and yeah. our people, the writings when they first come here, you know, people feeding people when they were starving, our mob giving them fish and trading and bartering and stuff like that. So that, that's what Native Tiles is about. Fisheries are better off working with. They should be coming. They should be funding this, and we've put in some um, funding to start um, doing this sea country plan. So we go to all our communities, so everybody has input to this. Mm. And then we're working with, um, you know, Wollongong University, and they they're going to help us, you know, put this together. We're working with IATSIS. They're going to help us put this together, a plan, and you know, support this sea country plan. This this sea country plan is not a first. There's some um, sea country plans all over Australia, and they're successful. It's just a roadmap. But it's by the people. It's made by the people, not told what to do. Mm. Like, we don't want fisheries coming to us and saying, this is what we're going to give you. We'll say, get stuff. Mm. You know, this is what we want. It's time It's time for change. It's time for us to work together. Mm. Let's talk a bit about some of the other things that you do with the Aboriginal Fishing Rights Group and about maintaining culture and fishing and stuff. And just before we started, you showed me a video of a new boat that's here on the Wagonga Inlet uh, that's being used with some nets and things like that. Tell us a bit about those sorts of things that you do with the group. Yeah, so what the Fishing Rights Group does as well is um, it's a way of keeping um, culture alive so of course Wallach Lake was the first Aboriginal reserve um, set up in Australia and they had a boat and net but a lot of people still remember them days down there where they used to go out and fish and set the net in Wallach Lake and then they'd all come back and share the catch out and people had a healthy lifestyle and anyway as the commercial fishing industry grew and you know, them things were taken away from our people and, and it started to die and hanging a net or making a net is a dying practice. And all our people up and down, all them old fellas up and down the south coast knew how to do that. And, you know, I was lucky, I suppose, that um, my father, you know, as a fisherman, then part of my chore was to help hang the nets, mend the nets and go fishing with him. We had no choice. So I seen it as a dying practice. So we, um, one of the programs that we, we put in for a grant, and we taught the, um, worked with um, Jimmy Taylor in the room and, and Mel's boat building, and went down there and negotiated with him. I said, "How about you know we teach the boys how to make a net boat?" And then I put in for some, uh, you know, the same grant. I put in for an outboard motor, and then I got all the net. And then I went down to the men's group, and I used to go down there once a week, sometimes twice a week, and work with the men's group and teach them how to hang the net so they actually made their own net and mm-hmm. so they do that now they fish their community once a week and then share the catch out amongst their elders because our elders are in the case study getting back to the case study had highlighted that our our mob are um you know low in protein and iodine which you get from f- fresh fish and then because of you know all the old people who can't access that no more and even can't even afford it so i was able to give that meal back to our community to our elders as well so mm. that catch we had this morning will probably f- feed, you know, 30, 40 people in our community, 30, 40 families in our community today. 
Mm. And so, where does this, where does, where does the use of these nets in the estuaries and things like that lie when it comes to you know legality? Is that a yeah. cultural fishing yeah. um, access thing? Well, that's a, that's another argument I'm having now with you know the guys in DPI. When we first put the net project together at Wallaga Lake for the men, for the Wallaga Lake Men's Group, we put in a permit. It's called a Section 37 permit. We didn't need to because we could have fished under cultural fishing. And the reason we put it in is because we knew they were going to get backlash from the wider community. So we agreed to put in the permit for to fish once a week under their state regulations. Yep. Put all these you know bullshit regulations on us, and we did that because um we wanted to break the barriers down with the wider community mm. because the white community, as soon as they see a black fellow out there, they ring up the fisheries and say you know there's a black fellow out there fishing or a black fellow out there diving. There's a reward for that. You know they get get a thousand dollars reward to dobbing a black fella yeah right <laughs> and it actually worked because the day we went and you know launched the new boat and net before we even got the boat in the water they had two phone calls oh really DPI had two phone calls to say there's some black fellas out at Wallaga Lake netting so that was a that's a classic example of um the reason why we put the permit in the section 37 permit to go on net but now after that after that we're saying no we're not going to put that section 37 permit in anymore because the people who are using this net and doing this fishing practice are, are traditional owners. They're part of this native title claim and will be fishing under our native title rights, which is Section 211 of that Native Title Act. Mm. They're still trying to make us fill in a Section 37 permit, and we're saying no because once we fill in that permit, we're giving up our native title rights. Mm. This is what they're trying to do. They're still trying to con our people up, fill in this Section 37 permit, control us, basically. Mm. And we're saying, no, get stuff, you know, um, we're, did we're, you did you fill rights. in that permit for Naruma? The first one was for Wall- um, Wallaga Lake, and then last year we done a permit for Wagonga and and Mummiga. Yep. And, and so um, so going forward from here, no more permits. Yeah, no more permits. Yeah. Yeah, and, I've, and we're head button. So we're we're just waiting. We were hoping uh, we were thinking that the fisheries would have been waiting there at the boat ramp for us this morning and yep. laid all the charges and done all their stuff. Do you think we're ready to fight it because it's. Yeah, you know, he's a he's a seventy four year old man who's netting there today. Yeah, you know that's all he knows is fishing, and that's what keeps him healthy. You know, he's been prosecuted probably a dozen times, so we we're expecting them to turn up today, but they didn't. And we don't want to have that argument. But my point is, is that if they prosecute him, we'll be just taking it back to court again. We using section two eleven of the um, Native Title Act as a defence. Yeah, then they'll throw it out again. Like right the last again. case cost us cost the government $139,000 of taxpayers' money. Mm. You know, you're trying to, trying to prosecute. Like, the, the extent they go to to prosecute a black fellow is unbelievable. Mm. Like, one of the cases that was, early cases that was done up in Narrow with a couple of the guys, um, we had a really sharp lawyer, and he actually subpoenaed the fisheries emails and the police's emails and, you know, for the court case, and it showed the extent that they went and showed each other their emails to just to prosecute this black fella mm. and this is the games that they play just to destroy our lives and um, when i say destroy our lives it's really destroyed people's life one of our old fellas got you know he, he got prosecuted and sent to jail and it was the first time he was in jail and for a, an aboriginal elder man who was taken to jail and going through that system and stripped naked and made to stand there and it was devastating for him and his kids were trying to come and visit him and he was too ashamed of his kids see him in jail and his wife and stuff like that and then and he was a breadwinner of that family and and then when he was in he'd done nine months for that and then when he was in jail his family broke down you know he was and all the other people that he fed as well and and then he come out a broken man destroyed not only him like the impact doesn't just stop there the damage ripples right through the our whole community but they don't understand that i don't know if they do or they don't but they don't care about it you know as i, I see it you know in new south wales they passed culture fishing in 2009 you know, in, in, in Parliament, and um, we're in 2021, and today it still hasn't been enacted. So, you know, what does that tell you? Mm. you know, what does that say to our mob? We're talking going on, what, 12 years? Mm. And, like, when you pass something in Parliament, it usually comes to law the next day. Well, we're still waiting for culture fishing to, to be recognised by them. Mm. So, you know. Do you... Do you think that having sort of done a bit of research and meeting you in the past and, and, and learning about this situation, do you think that there's enough education out there? And in terms of, you know, talking about people calling up fisheries when they see people on Wallaga Lake using the nets, you know, people calling out your mob in the water when they're, when they're diving for abalone or something like that. Do you think that there's enough education for the broader community to make them understand this issue and, and to, to get people on board with, with cultural fishing rights on the South Coast? I mean, the education needs to be embraced by government as well. Fisheries don't do that. 
we're the ones who's been trying to get out there and educate our community when they say we've been copping it you know, forever. They're saying, oh, you fellas are black mafia and you're going, you know, you're organised crime and when we get a bag of abalone, they lay them all out on the footpath and count them all out and then they bring the media in here and then they've got the black following handcuffs and then they've got the paper there and, and they betrayed us like that, you know, and that's what we're saying and then it's only in the last, you know, fishing rights groups come along and we're saying, hey, that bloke's only taken, you know, probably 20, 30 kilos. You've got a whole industry there. It's taken, you know, 200 tonne a year. Yeah. You know, who, who's, who's, who's raping the ocean around here? Who's the poachers? You know, so fisheries are not going to do that education, but that's what we've been doing. We've been telling the other side of the story, yep. you know, and, and it's hard when, um, you know, you still got the appliance officers right across New South Wales told just to police us under their state regulations and forget about that Native Title Act. Mm. You know, it's, so that's... It comes back to the discrimination again. And it's their own law. Our mob are angry. They're really pissed off. And we've got to teach them to, hey, come on, you know, we're TOs. Understand what's happened. You know, it's our duty of care to, you know, take care of country and and look after country. For, you know, we, we need to start planning six or seven generations ahead to fix this country, not just, say, tomorrow. You know, so, it's, so what we've been doing is a lot of education programs. I do a lot of presentations around... I just done one in um, Adelaide a couple of months ago and a researchers' conference and a, and a native title conference and we showed the, highlighted the impact of what's happening here on the south coast and, and how it's been discriminated and how it's, um, you know, what it's done, to, the damage it's done to our people and people don't get to see that. And it's probably a good time now because, you know, it's, it's NAIDOC week this week. Exactly, yeah. You know, and, it, and it's, uh, it's talking about healing country. Well, you know, um, healing country, if you're going to heal country, you have to tell the truth. You know, otherwise we're not going to heal nothing, you know, and then we've got to start working together. I'm prepared to sit at a table and compromise, and I, I know our mob will at the end of the day because they care about this country like I do, and we want to look after this country. We want our, our kids to see what I've seen. We had a great upbringing on the coast, and, you know, and our fathers always looked after country. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good way to end it, Wally. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap it? Well, we've still got some court case running this week. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, but that's some just that just goes to show. Is that them. more ab diving? And yeah, stuff? that just goes to you know they've been running. Some of them have been running for two and three years, and well, we're hoping in the next twelve months, two years, that um, can sit down with the same table with fisheries and come together and talk with respect with each mm. other. It's like I said, we're sick of being treated as a stakeholder. We're traditional owners, not stakeholders, and we want to look after this country too. And we know that if we all put our heads together, we can do this. We can mm. achieve this. Yeah, I, I think that I'm. It's important as well for anyone that's listening to understand that anyone can engage on these sorts of issues yeah. and write to their ministers and, and make their voices heard. So I think that's important for people to note as well. It's NADOC week this week and uh, I hope that there's a lot of people listening who are just hearing about this for the first time and that they can engage um, some way as well. Wally, thanks for joining me, mate. You're welcome. <laughs> thanks. Okay, so that was the first part of this episode. We now take you to Mossy Point on Ewan Country, where we're speaking with Wal Bunjaman and commercial cultural fisherman Andrew Nye. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me and having having a chat. Uh, you're welcome, yeah. So, to begin with, do you want to just tell me a bit about who you are and, and what you do? Well, um, I'm Andrew Nye and uh, I've been a cultural commercial fisherman since I was 14. I was born in Batemans Bay, like... 12 k's from where I live right now, so I'd have to be a local, and I've done nothing but fish all my life. Yeah, right. Yeah. And what does a cultural commercial fisherman mean? Well, we say like culture, like it's still practising and our what we know about fishing down, and that's that's all culture to me. And uh, and I think that uh, we should be allowed to continue without any interruptions because it's one of the oldest cultures in the world. Mm. So we should be allowed to practice it and teach our young ones, which going back probably seven or eight years ago, I weren't, I weren't allowed to really teach them because mm. grandchildren and nephews and nieces and stuff like that weren't allowed to help us with our fishing because mm. of uh, restrictions put on by a fisheries department. Mm. And so were you sort of granted a cultural commercial licence? Is that how it works? How does the licensing situation work? Uh, no, we was issued one by the department for $2.00. Right. And, uh, Is that a family license? Did I, did no, that, that was an ind- individual license. Okay. But our our uh, fishing business was 
always belonged to my dad and his dad prior to that sort of thing, so like my grandfather. And uh, we each had a fishing licence, but dad owned a business. And then when dad passed away, my eldest cousin run the business because he was the eldest. And uh, then later on down the track, the, the department decided to split it up into three separate businesses. So that way then we was paying three separate lots of money yeah, to them right. to work the one business. Yeah. And I think to me that was that was wrong for them to do that, you know, because when that was done, then family weren't allowed to help me with a net unless they was endorsed to do so. Mm. And that official license and were endorsed to do it because they could have got a fine and I could have got a fine. Mm. Why don't you tell me a bit about the practices that you use as a cultural commercial fisherman, you know, that that are a part of your culture and that are different to what other commercial fishermen would use around here? Well, we only beach fish. We uh, we make our own nets. We buy the net in bulk and we, we make our nets and put them together and whatever. And uh, we use four-wheel drives to tow our, our our boats and nets down onto the beach and uh, catch the fish and cut our fish off with, with the trucks and to the co-ops mm. and whatever where my, my grand grandfather and my dad done. They used to catch the fish, they'd, they'd carry the boat down to the beach, they'd catch the fish, and they'd carry the boat net back up off the beach and they'd basket the fish up over the sand dunes into the truck. Mm. Well, the only thing we do different is uh, we use a four-wheel drive. Mm. We still row our boats, we haven't got motors on them, but there's other commercial fishermen that do the same thing, but I was always a cultural fisherman before I became a commercial fisherman. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, are, what are sort of some of the species that you chase around here? Uh, mainly, uh, this time of the year it's mainly salmon, you don't get much of anything else. Um, we used to chase a lot of garfish in the summer time, around Christmas time sort of thing, and um, then then the department has taken uh, most of that office because we only have 40 shares, and off that 40 shares I'm only allowed to catch uh, 640 kilos of garfish a year, mm-hmm. where prior to that I could go out and catch three, four, five, six tonne of garfish a year. Yeah, right. So, so just to put your just to put your net in and catch uh, you know 640 kilos is not worth doing it because you could, we've done uh, shots where we've caught like two or three ton of garfish you know and we've had to we've had to tip them out just to, and just keep 40 uh, 640 kilos and that's just like watching money swim away from you know yeah you've got to release and and I mean how do you how do you even measure it while you're on a boat trying to trying to you know weigh up 640 yeah. kilos well, we, we, out of your nets yeah well we we sort of pull our nets to the shore back onto the beach right right so therefore if you pull out if you pull a net to the back to the shore and you pull a garfish out of the water uh, they're going to die before you can get your 640 kilos out and then you're supposed to take the remaining ones out that's already dead and dump them out to sea yeah right, and then they wash up the beach, and they get the blame from yeah. us guys. Yeah right. But now we sort of argue on back, saying you know like we should be allowed to still catch a certain amount of garfish, two or three ton of garfish a year, which can pay you. Where six hundred forty kilos is not going to pay you. Mm. Uh, what are some of the other species? We um, ca- mullet as well. Yeah, we catch mullet. We we concentrate on the mullet mainly uh, through the middle of March. You know, they, but they don't go for. For very long, that they're seasonal fish, yep. and they come out of the rivers around. You know, it all depends on weather, whether you know the weather's right for it. And they'll come out of the rivers and they migrate north, and you've got to catch as many of those as you can because uh, that might only last four, five or six weeks. Mm. You know, and if you get bad weather like rain and strong winds, they don't come in onto the beach like they normally do. They stay out out in the deeper water, and you can't catch them. Yeah, right. Yeah. Do you do you fish the estuaries as well? Only, only do prawning. Oh, okay. And uh, the department tries to try to stop us from doing that because me and my son had 125 shares for, for prawning. Then the department says we've got to buy another 25 shares to go and do what we've done for all our life sort of thing. Yeah. And they're telling us we've got to go and buy another 20, 25 shares for me to take a boat and net down and for him to take a boat and net down. Yeah. Otherwise we've got to combine our shares and just take the one boat. Yep. So they, they 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 keep pushing us into a corner, but but I refuse to do that. I'll I'll take my boat and net down, and I'll go and fish as a cultural fisherman. Mm. And they can't stop that. Mm. You know, they can they can try if they want to, but it won't, it won't stop me. They can throw me in jail if they want to, but I'll 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 go and fish as a cultural fisherman. I've already told them that. Mm. You know, and I I will do it. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that one thing that I remember 
like growing up around here is seeing seeing you guys in the dunes constantly watching the ocean do you want to tell us a bit about how how it works when you're watching the ocean what you're looking for and 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 that practice well well when we concentrate on the mullet run like we'll we'll get up at four o'clock in the morning we'll leave about half past four or five o'clock and we'll come and sit down on the beach and it's still dark we just sit up on a, a little high peak on the sand dunes and we just watch for the fish to come and um you know and uh, we can stay there all day and you know, and not catch a fish, or we can see the fish and still not catch them yep. until late in the afternoon time. So then, when we catch them, this is mullet, and when we catch them, then we've got to have them transported to Bermagui. If you catch them late in the afternoon time, you might not get back from Bermagui till one, two o'clock, or a bit later in the morning, back up at four o'clock and do the same thing the next day. Mm. Yeah. But if you don't catch no fish, it's a long day. And so, so you're you're on the dunes there literally just looking for them in the water and yeah. when you spot them you can row your boats out and, and, and put a net around them. Yeah we can tell what type of fish they are and we can tell pretty close how many is in that patch of fish. How did, how did you learn that? Did you learn that from your family? Um, yeah from dad and that you know he, he had really good eyes like my son Craig's got good eyes he can see fish when it's still dark just about but we, really? can, we can catch mullet because mullet are surface fish we can catch them at one or two o'clock in the morning if it's a full moon and it's a clear night Right. Because they're a surface fish and they live awake on the top of the water. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Do you do that same spotting for salmon and other species? Uh, salmon salmon are a bit different. Even salmon can be a, a surface fish like mullet, but salmon mainly in the wintertime, they're hard fish to see. They they scatter out a lot on the bottom and they uh, and they stay on the bottom. They're not right on top of the water yeah, like, okay. like uh, mullet. But we more or less do the same thing we sit up on the high peak and uh, we watch for the patch of fish come and then we go and get ready for them yeah but you've got to have a no matter what type of fish you catch you've got to have a nice flat bottom beach sort of thing otherwise it's just a waste of time because you'll lose them mm. yeah. and we do catch whiting and brim yeah and stuff like that um what what has been your major sort of market for for the fish that you catch since since you've been commercially fishing? Really? Um, well, well, so one of our main markets used to be the salmon, Australian salmon. Yep. This is going back many years. We used to catch them, and and uh, no matter what we caught, we could catch five, six, ten, fifteen ton a day, and uh, they'd go to uh, Eden because Eden used to can the salmon to down the cannery. There. And, and we, that was pet food, was it? No, that was canned food too. Oh, canned salmon. Yeah. yeah okay. You know, and then um, then when the cannery closed down, it threw a spanner into the works, and we was only yeah. allowed we could only catch enough then to put into the markets, into the Melbourne market and the Sydney market. Uh, but our mullet, we we concentrate on the mullet in late late March. They uh, they go to to uh, Brisbane to be processed up there for the egg row. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Oh, for the row. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. and I mean they use the fish as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so with a. Uh, with organisations like that, I, I don't think they'd just buy the fish and just take the egg row out and throw the rest away. <laughs> they'd, they'd do something with it. They'd be doing yeah. something with yeah. it. One thing that I remember being a young kid growing up around here was, and our house is just on Massey Street, and we'd go over the dunes, and when you guys would have a good haul, the whole community would come down and help you help you bring the nets in. Yeah, you were allowed to do that them days. Mm. But, but uh, then later on down the track, like only... Going back probably about five, six years ago, you weren't allowed to do that. Mm. Like, you couldn't go and touch a net or anything like that, otherwise you get into trouble because you weren't endorsed to do it. They call, they, they call it an, an increased effort to catch more fish, but it's not the case because I've told the department, I said, the only time we put an increased effort in to catch more fish is when the mullet run are on because it can last, like, six or eight weeks, the sort of thing, and can be over or can be over before that if, you, if you've got the bad weather and uh, floods, mm. you know. So that was one of the, one of the things I... So mm. and, and when it comes to the Aboriginal community around here, that community participation in hauling the nets and things like that is all a part of your culture. Yeah, it is, yeah, because, you know, and, and, some, and I don't know how they find out, actually, because we can be over the beach here today and on Barling's Beach or over on Candle and we can patch, catch a patch of salmon or mullet or whatever, you know, and, and family just turn up, you know. They, they turn up, they help, they get a feed of fish and they go, but at the end of the day it's just... The ones with the the commercial ones with the license are still there, but yeah. most yeah. But we do get family members coming and help us out, yeah. Yeah. Because to me, like um, with with our with the with the fishing, you know, and I told fishers, I said there's no really the only increased effort really that goes into us 
helping us with the Patchy Fish family helping us is that we can get those fish out of the water onto our trucks down to Bermagui, weighed up and on ice an hour or an hour and a half earlier than we would if there was just the five of us. Mm. You know, so by us not being able to get our fish to the mar- uh, co-ops and on in the, weighed up and in the cool rooms quick, the, the fish are they're deteriorating sort of thing. So you, then again, you're putting the public health at risk. Mm. You know, so the idea is to just get them down there and on ice as quick as you can. Has there been any understanding from, you know, fisheries and things like that that, that, that that's the case? That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be catching more fish to have people help you bring in nets? It's just, it's just their rules and regulations because, to, to me, they, they've made it so hard on us, like they've taken everything off us. Mm. You know, like like my, my dad used to first start diving for abalone. You know, and, and he was only getting sixpence a pound for them, which is we call mutton fish. Yeah. You know, he's only getting sixpence a pound for them. And then, then uh, other people started buying them, and other people diving for them and that. But then when when they become really expensive sort of items, sort of seafood, then we missed out. And mm-hmm. we should have been one of the, us and the Brodies should have been one of the first ones to have uh, an abalone licence. Mm-hmm. Now everybody else has got them, and no Aboriginal person's got them. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's our resource. We've ne- we never give it up. We never sold it. Same as the land. We never gave the land up. We never sold it. You know, and 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 our culture is the oldest culture in the world. And we really we've been, you know, sort of been pushed away from it. Really. Mm. Yeah. What other things, changes have you seen since you you've been fishing commercially in terms of, you know, the enforcement of regulations and things like that that sort of made your job more difficult. You mentioned, you mentioned your quota for garfish. Was yeah. reduced and stuff. Yeah, well, just just say when I well I first got my license or when I was about twenty or something like that, you know, and I, I could go and catch whatever type of fish I wanted to catch. I could go on any beach I wanted to go on, you know, and there was there were, there was no restrictions on us. But now we're restricted on what beaches we can go on. It's either by the, the DPI department on what, on what species of fish we can catch, the national parks, marine parks, and the council and that with the access onto the beaches. So all up, I'd say we've probably lost about 80% of water. So that's just the the ability to drive onto different beaches down here yeah. to launch the boats. Yeah, and we don't do we don't do no damage because we drive on where we drive onto a beach. That's the only access we lo- use. Yeah, we drive on there and we drive off there, and and you can go there um, a week after we've been on there if you've had a strong wind from the nor- uh, southeast or something like that or northeast. All our tracks cover up, and you wouldn't even know it. Mm. You know, so we don't do no, we don't do no damage, and and uh, we we should be able to, you know, access any beach to make a living. Because mm. the majority of the fish we catch is, is uh, migrating fish. If there's they're, if they're at a beach where we can't catch them, that's no good to catch them on, and uh, they go onto a, a beach that's in the marine park, sentry zones. We've got to watch them go past there and mm. not do nothing about it. But mm. going back. A fair few years back there now, when they opened uh, Churros up when it was closed, they opened it up on a Saturday, and me, me young fella come down over Can Logan up on the hill there, and on a Sunday, and he rang me up and he said, Dad, he said, there's two good eats of mullet just going past here. He said, you go down, we call it cemetery, but they call it Melville Point. He said, go down there and you'll see him. So I, I go down there, and I'm sitting up on the headland there, and he, he comes there because he's got better eyes than me. And he comes there, and as soon as he pulls up there, he said, there they come now, Dad. And they, there's about 600 boxes there. So they come and they, they swam along that beach. It was a light, drizzly rain. They swam along along the beach, and uh, right up into the corner near the island there, we could have caught those fish, but we weren't allowed to because it was a Sunday. We had a weekend closure where we're not allowed to fish on weekends. Right. And uh, so so we had to watch probably, probably it could have been ten or $12,000 worth of fish just swim past which we could have caught, and there wasn't a single soul on the beach. And so they say, and I asked them why the department, why this uh, weekend closure was in, and they said it's for the interest of the public and uh, holiday makers. You know, I said, well, that's that's fair enough. So I can live with that. But I said, why does it come in on the first of uh, October? I think it was the first of October, and ends at the end of February. It's in for, you know, like for four months, and we're not out of fish on weekends. And it's hard. Being, being an, an ab- Aboriginal, it's, it's hard not to want to go down the beach and have a look. Of course. You know, like like even if the sea's rough, I'll still drive down the beach and I'll sit up on Ned Land and watch it. Even though we're not going to catch none, I still like to be there and look anyway. Yeah. You know, and, and then you go down there and you see the fish there and you're not allowed to catch them. And to me, that's wrong. 
I said to them, what, what do you do if, if it's a weekday and we're allowed to fish? I said, there's a patch of fish coming along and the beach is full of people. I said, what do we do then? He said, oh, he said, you can politely go and ask them to uh, come out of the water or something. I said, yeah, I said, you can do that with some. I said, but some of them, I said, they, they, they might get a bit nasty or whatever, you know. So I said, if, if there's not many people on the beaches, we should be allowed to go on there and catch those fish. Mm. Because there's a lot of beaches that we can't fish on where you might see three or four people on there. Mm. So those three or four people on a, on a, a weekend closures can stop us from making a living. Mm. So, and you did m- mention the, the reduction in your take for, for garfish. Has, has any of your other take been reduced since since you've been fishing? No, no, not at the time. Mainly just garfish and, like I said, we had abalone and lobsters taken off. So we yep. used to do, like, like we used to do the lobsters too, but we'd go, just say we... Like tomorrow, we know it's going to be a nice day. We'll say, Oh, we'll go down to Mullumbar Point, you know, or we'll see if we can catch a patch of salmon. So we might go down there for half a day and not mm. catch no fish, not even see any. So we, we come back home, we grab our diving gear, and we go and get 10 or 20 kilos of abalone or, or 40, 50 crows, you know, and then you're making your money. Yeah, okay. But these days, you can't do that. If you don't catch no, if we don't catch fish, we don't get paid. Mm. You don't have that option anymore. No, we haven't got that option no more. And I think, I think, um, I think we should have, uh, as original owners of this country and the resource, we should have a have a say in every decision that this department makes where we don't. You know, like they they get around and they say they have consultation with the public, not not like saying they have consultation with Aboriginal people, but they say they have consultation with the public, and the public agrees on this, the public agrees on that. Not, and to me, I think it's a load of crap. They just say that, or they'll have a have a consultation with a few people, and and so they have a consultation with the public, and they want this. Mm. And I, I I reckon they're just just telling fibs. Mm. I was speaking to Wally Stewart this morning about the Aboriginal Fishing Rights Group, yeah. um, and that's something that's active now, and uh, the native title claim is now registered. Do you see anything changing now at the moment or in the near future? Uh, I think I think things have changed a bit because um, what we're saying to the department, you know, you show me proof of ownership that you own this resource and the land and whatever, you show me a proof of ownership and we'll abide by your rules and regulations. But you can't show me proof of ownership because you've got no proof that you own this resource. We can prove who we are and where we come from, you know. So we've got more rights than they've got. But we don't want to stop anyone else from using the resource, but we want to we want to have a, a, a say in that resource and be able to access that, that resource, like in abalone and lobsters. Mm. You know, like like you you go and you go and get a, a feed of abalone and you can get busted by fisheries. But mm. they have backed off a lot, and I think one of the reasons why they're doing that too is because of the the situation with the native title and our fishing rights group, and we're asking you show me proof of ownership because if you own something, you've got to be able to prove you own it. Mm. So, so if 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 they don't, if they can't prove that they own it, why are we, as original owners of this country, paying them money to access the resource that truly belongs to us? Mm. To me, it's, it's wrong. We should be have access to every, any beach. Like I say, said there before, uh, the majority of the fish we catch are migrating fish. You know, garfish will come in and they lay in a bay, but they you don't get them um, travelling like from down at Mullumbara Point right up to Browley sort of thing. You know, they, they sort of come in from out in the deep and into sh- uh, sheltered bays when the wind blows hard. Mm. You know, they'll get into a sheltered bay. But they don't travel, you know, for miles and miles. Mm. But uh, salmon, like we don't catch a quantity of salmon we used to catch. People see us catch a patch of salmon, you know, just say so they might have 300 boxes in them, you know. And they, they see you catch salmon, they think, oh, you know, you're not going to catch nothing here. These guys just caught all the fish in the ocean. But... They don't, they don't see what swims past them that don't bite. Because I sat over Browley there, and I, I, I watched uh, one morning, and I watched two, two biggies, probably about 70 tonne in one patch, swim out past these half a dozen guys fishing on the headland in the corner of Browley Beach there. Not one of them caught a fish. Then another patch come, nowhere near as big, swam out there, and they ne- still no one caught a fish. They never got excited and seen them going past there, because I was watching with the binoculars. And then my son turned up and we drove down along the beach and there was a, another patch coming there, so we shot him in and the, you got to imagine what the guys out in the rocks would have been saying, oh, well, you know, they, they've just caught all the fish, you're not going to catch them. Yeah. Yeah, they've got no idea because they, they've never been educated. Yeah. And we do get people come up and ask us questions when they see us sitting on a headland, 
you know, they might they might walk along the beach there, say at seven o'clock in the morning, come back there at twelve o'clock and we're still sitting there. You know, probably thinking we're mad or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. And then um, you know, but you get the ones come up and they ask, you know, like what do you you know, what are you doing? Like what are you looking for? We explain to them, they wanna know how you how you can tell. So you can tell by dark colour in the water, you can tell what type of fish they are by the colour of them in the water and pretty much how many's in them. Yeah. So why, why don't you catch that quantity of, why do you think you don't catch that quantity of salmon anymore? Because you can't, it's, it's no good to put 50 tonne of salmon into the markets. Yeah, right. You know, so you, you don't you don't. So do unless that. there's a cannery nearby, which, yeah, which or, there used to be. We, we have had a couple of sales from, I think it was South Australia, I think, for bait, where we've caught them over a little period of time, like 30 or 40 tonne, you know, and... Um, not in the, not in the one heap, you know. You might go and get ten ton today, five ton, and something like that. And then when they when they build them all up, then they they pack them and send them to South Australia. I think it was for bait. It's not it's not that we're not catching a quantity like we used to catch. It's not because they're not there, because they're there thicker. Yeah. Okay. And the same as mullet, like you know, like uh, when the mullet travel, like I'm sitting over Prowley there, and there could be ten or fifteen ton of mullet there, or you know, or more, and. Um, and it comes dark and they're still there so you go home you go over there the next day and you don't see them and you might not, not see them fish again mm. so so when people say you know like you know you're catching you know, you, you're raping the ocean you're catching all the fish in the ocean it's a load of crap mm. because when it comes to mullet we wouldn't catch 50 percent of what we see yeah yeah mm. and the longer they stay in the river the harder it is for the weather to push them out and, and normally then when they when they, you get a bit when it pushes them out they don't, they don't come along the beaches, they go straight out to sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but right. apparently they spawn out to sea, that's what I reckon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How long's your family been commercially fishing for? Uh, well, I don't know how many years it's been, but my son Craig that fishes with me. I've yep. got four boys and he fishes with me. He's a sixth generation. Yeah, sixth generation. Wow. Yep. Do you think that you'll be able to continue this tradition in your family? You know, it's NAIDOC week this week. I was speaking to Wally about it just before, and it's talking about healing country. Do you, do you see, you know, another six generations of fishing in your family? Um, I, unless the rules and regulations change and, and the family are allowed to access main, the main resource which it can make money out of and get rid of a few restrictions on us, I, I, it could do, but the way it stands right at the moment, I'd say no, mm. because it's hard to, hard to get them to, uh, to come because they're frightened of being uh, prosecuted by fisheries, mm. you know, so, so that's, that's a big part in, but I'd say right at the moment, I couldn't see there being another six generations. Mm. Is there is there anything else that that you guys are doing, or that the that the fishing rights group is doing, um, or anything else you want to tell me about before we finish? Well, I'd I'd, li- I'd just like the the department and that to you know sit down and when they have consultation and talking about rules and regulation and changes like that, they they should involve us uh, indigenous fishermen and indigenous people in general because a lot of the rules and regulations they come up with. It's no good for us, you know. So and we don't ever say none of that, mm. you know. But uh, I, I think I think I'm feeling real confident about some things there, and I think I think we will see changes. Let's yeah. hope so. I hope so, because I, I just want to live long enough to to see the changes, you know. Like, because I'm 71 years old, you know, and I've got uh, 15 grandchildren, two great granddaughters, and great another great grandchild on the way, and. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with my life the way it's gone. I've, I've never drank or smoked in my life. My dad never, my dad smoked for two years, from 16 to 18, and he never ever drank. He gave up the smoke. Would never walk into a pub or a club to talk to a friend or nothing. They'd have to come outside and talk to him. You know, but uh, like I've never, I'm, I'm proud of, you know, to be an Aboriginal person. I wouldn't change who I am for anything in the world. I wouldn't change my job for anything in the world. I love it. We're our own boss. We come and go as we please. If we don't, if we want to go fishing tomorrow, we'll go. If we don't, we don't. Yeah. Or if we go and sit there for half a day and we don't see nothing, so we'll go home or we'll go somewhere else and have a look somewhere else. You know, and, and oh, I just love it. Like I, I tell people, I was born a fisherman, I'll die a fisherman. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything else.
Thanks so much for joining us for this special episode. A big thanks to Wally Stewart and Andrew Nye for joining us and sharing their stories. If you want to find out more about what they're up to, you can head to the New South Wales Aboriginal Fishing Rights Group on Facebook. We'll see you with the next episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.